and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic episode 27. I'm Nick Dixon and I'm joined inevitably by Toby Young. Coming up, the lockdown files, the enigma of Sue Gray and Chris Rock slaps back at woke culture, plus peak woke. And with a bit of luck, we'll be joined by Dr. Jordan Peterson. So, Toby, let's start with the lockdown files. Obviously, a huge story in the Telegraph, ongoing story, maybe going ongoing for a very long time because they've got 100,000 WhatsApp messages from old Matt Hancock and pals. And it's absolutely awful. It's everything you thought and worse, really, isn't it? It's some of the worst moments have been Hancock saying, deploy the variant. And and no, part some of our critics, we don't think Matt Hancock is literally deploying a bioweapon. It's just that he's deploying when they're going to talk about the variant to, as he said, frighten the pants off people. You had Simon Case saying it was hilarious, head of the civil service, Simon Case saying it's hilarious that people will be quarantined in boxy hotels you have this bargaining around the Berry Disability Unit where Hancock was like, well, we, he won't get James Daly and Berry won't get his disability unit if he doesn't fall in line with the lockdown legislation and all this kind of stuff. And and, and the attacks on Isabel Oakshot, which have been particularly disgusting. I've written a piece about it in The Daily Skeptic. And this idea that the mainstream media have sort of instinctively gone into defense mode, gone into sort of PR job. Like, what can we do about it? Instead of focusing on the story, let's attack Isabel Oakshaw. Nick Robinson grilled her about where she got the WhatsApp messages as if she just handed them over in a sports bag near the docks. And uh, how much were you paid for them? He was asking a Kay Burley called Isabel Oakshaw a lockdown denier, whatever this is. Kathy Newman attacked her and said, well, how much is your contract at Talk TV? Asked her how much she's paid in her wage. It was a bizarre kind of attempt to distract from the story. And it's all been pretty appalling. What, what was your take, Toby? Yeah, I've just um, written a piece defending Isabel for The Spectator, my weekly column. And uh, yeah, I agree with you. It's bizarre that senior journalists, both you know on newspapers and in broadcast journalism, seem more outraged by the fact that Isabel handed over these 100,000 WhatsApp messages that she'd been entrusted with by Matt Hancock, more outraged by that than by any of the revelations contained in the kind of cache of text messages, which is extraordinary. And I think there's a kind of two-part explanation. The first and obvious reason is that they feel guilty that they didn't do more to hold the government to account. They took the government's word, the, the word of people like Matt Hancock, that they were following the science, that they were just doing the bidding of their scientific advisors. And it's patently clear um, from these text messages that that isn't what was happening. Certainly, it wasn't what was always happening. Um, so I think there was a revelation yesterday that Chris Whitty advised Matt Hancock that people didn't need to quarantine for 14 days if they'd been pinged, provided they tested on each day, they could just quarantine for five days. And Matt Hancock said, oh, well, I'm not going to reduce the quarantine time from 14 days to five, because that would make it look as though we'd got the previous advice wrong. So that wasn't following the science, was it? That was ignoring the science in order to protect his own reputation. Anyway, I think the reason Isabel is being attacked, one reason anyway, is that people like Nick Robinson, Kathy Newman, Kay Burley feel guilty that they didn't do more at the time to drill down into these various curtailments of our liberty and try and interrogate whether they really were based on scientific advice or not. So I think it's sort of guilt and transference. They don't like to be reminded, you know, of how incompetent they were, or certainly how how lazy they were during the peak of the pandemic between sort of March 2020 and July 2021. 
masking in schools, another example. I think people assume that insisting that school children wear masks in classrooms was based on scientific advice. We now know it wasn't. The only reason the government did it is because they were bounced into doing it by Nicola Sturgeon. They didn't want to have an argument with her about whether it was the right thing to do. Didn't want her to look as though she cared more about protecting children and teachers than they did. So they just followed Nicola Sturgeon. They weren't following the science. They were following the First Minister of Scotland. Anyway, they could have done a great deal more to expose this at the time and maybe saved us from some of the collateral damage caused by the containment measures, but they didn't. So I think that's one of the reasons they're attacking her. Another reason is that she's she's sort of she's not in the club. She's not one of us as far as these kind of journalistic pangendrums are concerned. She doesn't play by the rules. She associates with undesirables like Nigel Farage and Aaron Banks. And, you know, uh, and in spite of all that, she's she's dis- disgustingly successful amongst the highest paid journalists in the country. And even worse, she's actually done their job much better than them. If the purpose of journalism is to create news, then she has shown them all up by creating what must be the biggest news story of the year, possibly the scoop of the decade. So that's another reason they're really cross with her. But I think you know, she's outside the club. She's a deplorable. So you know they don't like the fact that she is you know, making this news and she's been instrumental in exposing what they should have exposed. Uh, so I think, that, I think that's the sort of, um, that's the basis for all this resentment directed towards her. It does seem completely petty and ridiculous. And I say in my Spectator article that one of the reasons she's been condemned is because she doesn't have the correct opinions. She was anti-lockdown, she's pro-Brexit, she thinks the government, she's worried about state overreach and so forth. These aren't the opinions you're supposed to hold if you're a member of the kind of senior echelon of the kind of Brahmin journalist class. And that's one of the reasons, the fact that they want to remain in the club, I think, was one of the reasons they weren't more critical of the government's pandemic response. It was infradig to be too critical. It quickly became accepted by the elites of every profession that the containment measures our government, other governments were putting in place with the exception of Sweden, were the right response and would in fact reduce the risk posed to people by the virus. And she dissented from that, but they didn't. I say in my piece that that kind of groupthink, that intolerance for challenging whatever the prevailing orthodoxy is amongst professional elites is a danger to the press. How's it going to hold the fourth estate to account if it remains vulnerable to that groupthink, if senior journalists care more about protecting their elevated social status than they do about speaking truth to power? Yeah, absolutely. And I actually raised the point about guilt in my piece as well in the, in the Daily Skeptic, which you can read. It's called Mainstream Media's Response to the Lockdown Files Proves They Will Never Change. Yeah, I said it was embarrassment and guilt was an element of that. And there's also an element of journalistic procedure. They're saying you betrayed your source, which I suppose is true. I mean, I might not hand over 100,000 text messages to Isabel Oakshot in future, but that does pale in comparison to the much larger story, which is the content of the messages themselves, as we've said. And um, a few other things. I mean, it, it feels so long ago that we actually haven't even discussed some of this. We haven't discussed Slacky and Lee the idea that James Slack and Lee Kane, the sort mm. of kind of a couple of spin doctors, had this absurd amount of power over policy. And they were saying things, as you say, like when it comes to the mask thing, they were saying, no, no, you, it, it's too far ahead of public opinion. So it was no, it was no question of science or civil liberties. It was simply mm. what can we get away mm. with politically? That was the, the yes. entire calculation. 
And it's the, the idea of these couple of idiots, one of whom dressed up as a chicken to annoy David Cameron, are suddenly in charge of whether we all have to wear a mask or whether we get to leave our homes. It's just so disgusting. I can't even begin. And then on some of the other things you mentioned, well, the care homes, I don't think you did mention there, that, that Hancock wanted, he didn't, he, he wanted testing if you'd come out of hospital for going into care homes, but not for all residents, even despite Chris Whitty's advice. So this was a controversial thing. The other one that came up yesterday on headliners last night was the sex ban, where Whitty was slightly more reasonable and said, let's be realistic. You can't really ban couples from seeing each other. Whereas Valance was saying, no, they should really be in separate households. And Matt Hancock, despite Whitty saying it wasn't realistic, went on telly and said, well, yeah, you've really got to make a choice. You've got to be completely separate or you've got to be in the same household and test the strength of your relationship by moving in. Imagine Matt Hancock telling you, you have to test the strength of your relationship. Like, piss off, Hancock. I don't want to do that. But it's just a reminder of, and we all know about this on, on this podcast, but the reminder of the absurd level of control they wanted over people's lives, sex bans. And we had this twat Hancock telling us whether we have to move in with our partner or not. Isn't that just so insane? And what's really insane, to cap it off, Toby, is that people, instead of going, yes, it's absolutely disgusting, let's never let this happen again, there's this poll that I cite in my article from the Sunday Times where 37% say that the government's handling of COVID-19 was not strict enough, 34% say it was about right, only 19% say it was too strict. And the most absurd category is young people aged 18 to 24 51% say not strict enough. What is wrong with these people? I mean, surely with lockdown files landing, it proves that this was all absolute nonsense and must never happen again. But of course, this poll is from YouGov, so we have to pinch of salt. Do you believe those figures? And why are people saying that? Yeah, I just wanted to check something, which I think when you said it, I thought, oh, crikey, did I get that wrong then? Because I discussed this on London Calling this week. But I thought that the advice he ignored of Chris Whitty, well, Chris Whitty advised him to test anyone going into a care home. So yeah. they, they can only be admitted if they test negative. And that was one of the uh, bits of advice that Matt Hancock ignored. And I thought that the bit he, he ignored, he said, we will test people from the community going into care homes, but not people being discharged from hospitals into care homes. Um, and uh, it was, oh, I thought it was the other way around. Um, it muddies the waters. Well, it was, it was one of them. It was definitely one of them. I'm just trying to find out which it was. Anyway, um, yeah, and, it, and the reason he didn't want to make testing mandatory for all care home admissions was he thought it might interfere with him attaining his target of carrying out 100,000 tests um, What in the month of, I can't remember, was it April, right. I think. And we now know also that in order to meet that target, uh, he included not just tests taken, but tests being delivered. And there were something like 21,000 tests that were in an Amazon truck, which set off from the depot, you know, at a minute before midnight on whenever it was, April 31st, April 30th. Um, so he would come in within the deadline and meet his 100,000 test target. It was a ludicrous, audacious target that he'd given himself. And, uh, and he was yeah. even more I've got the exact quote here, he by the way. Mm. Sorry, he said, tell me if I'm wrong, but I would rather leave it out and just commit to test and isolate all going into care from hospital. Okay. I do not think the community commitment adds anything and it muddies the waters. That was his okay. bizarre okay. claim. So yeah, you got that right. I got that wrong. One of the things is you say, the influence of Slacky and Lee, um, seemingly because they were across the opinion polling, the focus grouping that the government was doing. And one of their responses, as you say, was, I think it was about, what was it, about withdrawing 
masks it was um you're, that would be you're too far ahead of public opinion to do that so it confirms i think what we've long known which is that the government kind of created this doom loop for itself which it then got trapped in which was it did indeed scare the pants of people and because it had frightened people so much because it had completely terrorized the population uh, it then was obliged to do more and more to allay that fear but actually because they were doing so much they then had to kind of pump out more fear in order to get people to comply outliers to comply with the um, uh, new ludicrous guidance whether it was the rule of six or no sex or you can't eat a scotch egg in a pub but not wear a mask because it's not a substantial meal and all the rest of it so they just got trapped in this doom loop uh, of their own creation yeah and on the frightened note andrew lillico wrote this Absurd tweet, really heavily ratio tweet, where he said it's not wrong to frighten people when they ought to be afraid. That's a very strange idea. I mean, well, maybe there's something in that if they really should be afraid, but what what they're doing is hyping up the fear unnecessarily to justify unjustifiable restrictions. I suppose if you really were warning someone of a hey, there's a fire in the building, let's get out, that would be justified. But that's not really what happened here, is it? No, certainly there were some vulnerable members of the population who needed to be informed about how to protect themselves. But that wasn't what the government did. The government terrified everyone and certainly gave the impression at the beginning of the pandemic that everyone was equally vulnerable to this new deadly plague. And that was completely misleading and unnecessary. What do you think will be the the, the the fallout from the lockdown files? Will it be ignored like the mainstream media trying to do sort of put, obviously Telegraph's mainstream media, I mean the rest of the mainstream media, except the spectator, are trying to sort of sort of sort of gaslight us about it will anything change will it stop future lockdowns what's your overall conclusion i suppose we can hope that it'll mean the public inquiry is less able to be a whitewash because how can it now proceed and reach its conclusions and ignore all the evidence that are in the whatsapp messages which we know have been passed on to the public inquiry. So I think it's going to make it slightly more difficult for the public inquiry to cover up some of the scandals disclosed in the text messages. And that's a good thing. But as to whether it'll make it, you know, help us to avoid making these mistakes again, I doubt it. I mean, we had a pandemic preparedness strategy in place, which the government was following until it decided to lock down. And that pandemic preparedness strategy was informed by several public inquiries into the government's response to previous pandemics like foot and mouth, avian flu, etc. And it was just ditched, ditched because it was politically inconvenient, because they calculated they needed to be seen to be doing more than what were, what they were advised to do if they'd followed their own preparedness plan. So I suspect that what will happen is that the public inquiry will say, well, the government got some things wrong, maybe indiscriminately locking down the entire population wasn't necessary, they could have focused on protecting just the vulnerable, maybe it was a little bit irresponsible to whip up fear, and it's had all these terrible collateral consequences such as the mental health epidemic we're currently in the throes of it wasn't necessary to close schools and so on and so forth but i imagine whatever recommendations it makes will just be junked if they're not politically convenient next time this next time something like this happens yes it does look that way and, and that yugo poll however questionable is not encouraging that the public don't seem to have quite got it still how how much of a nonsense this all was i suppose i'll say oh, it's just the telegraph who are who are known lockdown skeptics or something 
and it won't really change the opinion of the normies how I know in North London in my football team and so on, they'll, they'll go on thinking whatever they think. One of the really surprising things about that YouGov poll was that the younger people are, the more likely they are to think the government wasn't strict enough and should have done more. I yeah. mean, you would have, that, that's just bizarre. Um, yeah, why like 51% amongst 18 to 24 year olds thought it was not strict enough. Yeah, they, 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 even though they're almost invulnerable to COVID-19, they thought that their behaviour should have been restricted even more. It's bizarre, yeah. um, but there are. I mean, because they're woke, isn't it? It's that they're sort of lefties and woke. Even though they're they're not vulnerable medically, they're vulnerable to the idea of sort of leftist collectivism and authoritarianism. Yeah, and I suppose they think because they want to present as kind of caring, compassionate people concerned about the vulnerable that they don't mind sacrificing their liberty if it's going to protect granny or protect BAME people who they might believe are more vulnerable to COVID-19 etc. Uh, yeah I'm sure there's, there's there's a sort of combination of kind of extreme safetyism and wokery pokery which is a kind of deadly cocktail but there are some question marks I think about that YouGov panel that produced those results so we looked into it actually someone wrote about it for the daily skeptic uh, last year i think it was possibly even earlier he discovered that um the yougov panels tend to be people on higher incomes women are overrepresented people who live in cities are overrepresented so it's probably not going to be an entirely representative sample of the country at large Right, it's a load of rich Karens is what I'm hearing. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so good point about the public inquiry. That was the main reason Oakshot said it was justifiable to share these because it would give the public inquiry a kick up the arse, which was otherwise going to take years. And even someone in the Observer admitted that was a good thing. And so my last question on, on this is, how do you feel Boris came out? And who came out the worst? I mean, my take would be that Boris came out as someone with... Instincts for freedom, but too much of a coward to make any of that actually happen in policy, despite being the prime minister, ostensibly. And then, you know, Cummings came out as Cummings, very interested in the data, a lockdown zealot. Hancock and Case are the worst. And I would have said Case was possibly even worse until these latest revelations about the Berry thing and about the deploy the variant. Case came off absolutely awful, just terrible person, just reveling in the idea of people having to quarantine, just disgusting. Hancock well, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was specifically, he was reveling in the idea, not of everyone who was having to quarantine, reveling in the idea that people stepping out of first class cabins would then have to be ushered into shoebox hotel rooms. And Matt Hancock sort of seemingly made a gag about how, you know, they were, they were putting people who traveled in first class into the smallest hotel rooms. I'm sure his control over the process didn't extend quite that far but it was it was that it was a kind of um chippy thing um that was making yeah. simon case gleeful the idea of these people who are richer than him who unlike him can turn left rather than right when they get on the airplane were then having to be quarantined in shoebox sized hotel rooms and eat terrible food he was reveling in the discomfort of people richer than him Yes, but also, he also made this absurd claim about pure conservative ideology. So yes. I'm just trying to load the article, but I believe it was Alok Sharma, I believe, was concerned about about the uh, contact tracing. Like when, when you've been to a business, should you just have to give all your contact details away? I can't get the article right now, but, but there was a dispute over the word can versus should. And it was whether businesses should ask for your contact details or whether they can and basically Sharma wanted to tone down the language so that businesses don't necessarily have to do it whereas case 
was saying the only reason for that is pure conservative ideology. Used to be known as basic civil liberties. Like you don't necessarily want every business you go to to have all your information. And that's apparently pure conservative ideology. And he's supposed to be neutral in the civil service, but he thinks that the slightest civil liberty is just hardline conservatism. Yes, it was. Uh, I suppose you know, he wasn't the only person to smear anyone expressing any dissent from the government's increasingly authoritarian restrictions as far right. But yeah, it seems to be coming from the same place. And I agree, it is alarming, given that he's the most senior civil servant. He's the head of the civil service as the cabinet secretary and um, is supposed to uphold principles of neutrality. But uh, I guess we'll get on to Sue Gray in a minute. Um, Who comes out of it the worst? I mean, certainly Matt Hancock, I think. (laughs) You mean after Matt Hancock, presumably. Well, I originally, (laughs) it has to be Hancock. At one point, I was thinking it was a neck and neck between Case and Hancock. Now I think it's definitely Hancock. So yeah, I suppose after Hancock, and and what about Boris? Yeah. Yeah, I think, Is there any uh, well, I think Boris, I think it confirms what we already knew about Boris, which is that he had these libertarian instincts, or not even libertarian instincts, you know, these civil libertarian instincts. He was understandably concerned about this massive interference in personal liberty. He wasn't concerned enough to actually bother to kind of master the detail of the policy and marshal counter arguments and he just allowed himself to be browbeaten into going along with them by you know Dominic Cummings and Michael Gove and Matt Hancock I think we already knew that but another thing we already knew about him is you know that I think his nickname Dominic Cummings gave him was trolley because um, he would he would veer around like a wonky shopping trolley, um, uh, constantly kind of changing his mind. Um, and I'd heard from someone who worked with him in City Hall that he always his phrase was he always bears the imprint of the last person who sat on him. So you know if he's had a conversation with a lockdown zealot who's kind of set out the case for lockdown zealotry, he's a lockdown zealot. But if he's had a conversation with a sceptic, he's a lockdown sceptic. But there's no consistency, no kind of... It's really his sort of intellectual laziness as his biggest vice. You know, he, he can't be bothered to really drill down into the detail of an issue and master it and come to a kind of considered position and stick to it because he's just too lazy. And I think we kind of always knew that. Yeah, and he said that a second lockdown would be the height of absurdity, then announced one less than a week later. Announced announced it knowing that the data supposedly showed it was necessary was out of date uh, because um, Carl Hennigan had given him the more up-to-date data, which I think showed that actually infections were declining and a second lockdown wasn't necessary, but he ignored it and locked down anyway. Yeah, because it'd speak to people like Carl Hennigan and it'd say, maybe we need a red team who give the other view and we need to sort of, so we, we get the best possible information. We have both views and have this separate team, but that didn't seem to really happen, did it? No, it was something that Boris Johnson seemed to be in favour of, but was too too lazy to see through. That's the impression I classic. got from your yeah, classic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it just confirms everything we thought. We thought Boris, lazy, some decent instincts, but too much of a coward or too lazy. Hancock, just sort of delusional, psychopathic opportunist. I mean, it, it just confirms everything we thought about okay, it. it is. The, the, the one funny detail is that um, one of the people Hancock is exchanging messages with about Dominic Cummings um, uh, describes Cummings as a psychotherapist. And then he corrects yeah. himself and said, I mean psychopath. And so that's, maybe that was autocorrect. But I think um, uh, Cummings has now changed his Twitter bio to psychotherapist <laughs> yeah someone else called him a nightmare and someone else called him psych- so it's now nightmare psychotherapist sunak hancock so yeah he's uh he's quoting them on on his bio which is yeah because i think sunak I think, yeah, about S- S- nightmare. S- sunak uh 
Fraser Nelson has made this point, um, but Sunak is one of the few senior politicians to come out of it um, reasonably well. So Sunak seemed to consistently be lobbying for an easing of restrictions. Um, and uh, even though he never resigned and never made an issue out of it and didn't leak to try and promote that perspective um, and didn't often get his way, um, I think um, Fraser does give him some credit for preventing a fourth lockdown um, over Christmas in 2021, uh, by which time Fraser said he kind of mastered the art of how to manoeuvre his colleagues into supporting his position. Yeah, and you wonder if part of that is simply because he was the one who has to, had to budget for it all and, and somehow find the money, and he understood how absurd that was. And, and depending on who you ask, I mean, his eat out, help out, eat out thing is like being used now as the lockdown zealots are all saying, see, that would have killed billions or whatever, or that was a terrible idea. Whereas, you know, it seems like that was one of the better ideas to me. Yeah, but, totally. Um, but, um, and finally, Toby, I, I keep trying to get off this topic, but it is very interesting. It's a massive topic. I, I, I'm surprised you haven't brought up your cock up or conspiracy theory because you, you're seeing this as ultimate vindication that it is all just cock up. I mean, one could counter that and say, actually, though, isn't it, kind of it's kind of a conspiracy in that it's well it's i haven't thought it's through but it's basically what they're saying is bad enough and is quite sinister i mean they are saying we want to manipulate things we want to lock people down for for no good reason we want to scare them so we want to frighten the pants off them so that is kind of what people were saying true it's not coming from klaus schwab might be your point there's no group message from schwab saying hancock you better do this or i'll penetrate your cabinet well there is is that what you mean the only the only smoking gun which isn't really a smoking gun at all um is um at one point hancock jokes that bill gates will have to meet with him when he comes to the country on a scheduled visit because he's um he's he's done him a favor by injecting his microchips into so many people um uh, and uh, but that's a, clearly a joke um yeah. and shouldn't be taken literally uh, just like the uh, release the variant doesn't mean that he's actually creating a covid variant um but um i guess yeah the 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 well, I've obviously had this discussion with James Dellingpole at length twice now because the first time we recorded it, he hadn't switched his <laughs> mic on, so we had to record it all over again. <laughs> but the, the okay. argument was no less heated the second time. Um, and uh, <laughs> and um, the impression you get from sifting through these text messages is that you know the reason uh, Matt Hancock was behaving as he was, is because he was drunk on power. He was giving into his own authoritarian impulses. He was either trying to get good press coverage or advance his political career or do down his rivals in the cabinet. There's no more sinister explanation than that. It was just incompetence and vanity and kind of amateurish kind of usual political clown show. Uh, that, that That's certainly the impression given by these text messages. There, is, there, there doesn't seem to be any evidence that, they, that he was following a plan of any kind, that he was trying to fulfill any sort of agenda with an ulterior motive beyond just promoting himself. James's best argument was that, um, well, he clearly wasn't following the science. Um, so why was he doing these things? If these things weren't required by the science, if the scientific advisors on SAGE, the chief medical officer, the chief scientific officer, weren't telling him to do these things. In fact, they were telling him on some occasions to do less, and he just ended up 
not doing less, but doing more, um, then why was he doing that? You know, what's the explanation? Well, the explanation is that he saw an opportunity in this crisis, I think, to, you know, just to advance his political career, to become, in his words, Mr. Vaccine. You know, I think in the case of the vaccines, I think he, you know, he genuinely did believe that the vaccines would be our way out of, you know, the the crisis um and they would they would they were effective i don't think he i don't think he sort of knew as james suspects that um they weren't very effective and you know, james obviously thinks that they are part of some kind of depopulation conspiracy um uh, i don't think matt hancock there's no evidence in the lockdown files that matt hancock believed that the vaccines would actually harm people uh, i think he thought they would be a miracle cure um and uh, and he wanted to be mr vaccine because uh, he wanted to be associated with the success of the vaccine rollout at the end of the pandemic i thought james was going to say that he did sort of say that he thought that the this was kind of um it, what he call it limited hangout um that kind of watergate phrase in which um people kind of release some information but not all of it in order to give a misleading impression um and i th- he sort of hinted at, at saying that you know that some team kind of um uh, you know umpa lumpers the wef had created this cache of documents and it had now been released via isabel oakshot and matt hancock to create the impression uh, that it all is just chaos and clownery uh, rather than a conspiracy uh, but yeah i think that's pretty implausible i think judging from the reaction and the fact that no one has denied anything in them um uh, they are it is an authentic document we can treat it as the real deal yeah, I think it's absolutely authentic. Obviously, it's not everything because it's only the Matt Hancock messages. So there, there may be a, a trove of Schwab messages that didn't reach Hancock because he wasn't important enough. You know, Klaus Schwab just messaging Boris and Rishi. Who knows? But yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't really agree with James there. And I, it seems to be sinister enough that people so easily slip into authoritarianism and abuse of power. That's what we learn from it. One interesting question might be, would Hancock had he known the vaccine didn't really do much, would he have still promoted it for his own political career? I don't know what's libelous, so I don't want to say anything else, but I'd, I'd ask that question. You know, He seems to be very much focused on opportunism. We have to hit my 100,000 test targets above all else. You know, All, all these, these nonsense things he did. So let's say the vaccines, he didn't know they were going to harm people, but he, they weren't that effective. Would he have still pushed them if it had been mm. you know, expedient for him to do so? I wonder. But yeah, and we also learned the police will do just about anything, which we might get onto later with the Isabel Vaughan Spruce case. The police will basically enact any any rule that you come up with, and politicians will immediately default to authoritarianism. So those are some pretty scary findings on their own, really. Yeah, I think. Well, I think um, they certainly did um, default to authoritarianism, but I don't think politicians have always done that. I listened to a really good lecture, actually, by Jonathan Sumption earlier, um, which he gave about four months ago, in which he talked about, you know, the fate of democracy and our democratic institutions and way of life in light of what happened over the past three years. And he says that for 200 years, liberal democracies have functioned relatively well. They haven't descended into despotism, which Aristotle thought was inevitable. He thought the problem with democracy is it too easily descends into despotism. But that hasn't happened for 200 years, Jonathan Sumption said, because of restraint, convention, custom, culture. Uh, There are no constitutional or legal restraints on governments behaving despotically, as we discovered during the lockdown, Um, uh, not just here, but in Australia, Canada, elsewhere. But there are these cultural, conventional 
constraints. Those appear to have kind of vanished. So it is bound to happen again, particularly if there's another threat like this. And and that, that's absolutely clear from reading the WhatsApp messages. At no point does Matt Hancock, I mean, some of the other politicians, Alex Sharma, maybe Rishi Sunak, you know, there is some kind of vestige of concern for civil liberties and not wanting to intrude into people's lives unnecessarily some vestige you know you can you can feel that they're slightly uncomfortable about it whereas Hancock no discomfort at all um just seemingly totally unconstrained by any convention any kind of regard for individual liberty which in a conservative should be shocking yeah and i think this shocked a lot of us at the time because we thought perhaps we were still living in that other world. I don't know when it ended exactly, but even when I grew up, we were still living in a Christian country, a country based on free speech, civil liberties, English values we took for granted. They're just not there anymore. And the cultural collapse is kind of tied to this knee-jerk authoritarianism because there used to be some sort of, like you say, a sort of cultural restraint on it that we had, which we just simply don't. That's fascinating. Well, I have to read that piece because yeah, I very much agree. I'll send it to you. It was a lecture on YouTube. It was the Robert Menzies lecture. He he gave it in Australia about four months ago, and I just watched it. It's really good. Okay. Yeah, and like you say, so it'll just happen again. All right. Well, I think we've done enough on that, but it's a fascinating topic, the lockdown files, and obviously perfect for our podcast. But let's move on then and do this Sue Gray thing, perhaps relatively briefly, which is it's quite a strange saga, the Sue Gray thing, isn't it? She's appointed chief of staff by Labour, which in itself is obviously very odd after she was the one leading the inquiry against Boris Jacob Rees-Mogg's even called it a coup, therefore, and said that it shows that you know her her, partial, her impartiality needs to be questioned, and we need to look into this. Should this kind of thing be allowed to happen? And then Nick Ferrari has grilled Keir Starmer on this on his radio show on LBC, and, and specifically about when he first approached Sue Gray for the chief of staff job, and. Starmer said there's nothing improper about it whatsoever. He keeps saying there's nothing improper, but he asks him 10 times and he won't simply say when he approached it. And everyone's like, well, if there's nothing improper, and he, you know, and even lefties are calling this out, like, why don't you just say it? Mm. Any take on this? Oh, well, quickly, my one little 4D chess theory was that Boris somehow got Sue Gray appointed so that it would discredit the report against him. This is my 4D chess. But very, very well, so, so, so what Boris knew that she'd already, she was already plotting to kind of um, become Keir Starmer's chief of staff and therefore manoeuvred to get her appointed as the head of the inquiry so he could subsequently discredit the inquiry by pointing to the fact that she joined Keir Starmer's staff. Something along those lines, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All the other way around that he then somehow plotted to get her that job, even though he, he doesn't have much influence in the Labour Party. So that's, that's probably less plausible. Yeah, yours is the more plausible version I think, of yeah, that. No, yeah. in, in order to, but you know, I, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't fit with the Boris we know. He's not a kind of diabolical mastermind capable of such subtlety, I think, which would involve well, some concentration. He's quite, he's quite clever politically, don't they? And he's managed to, you know, survive politically, well, until very recently. That's he managed true. to, so he might, I don't know, I wouldn't put it, but what do you think it is? I mean, why has Starmer done this? Has he done it to cause chaos or has he just done it as a sort of mistake i mean or just because she's good i think she may be very competent you know he he, he may have thought that she'd be a better chief of staff than anyone else um but i suspect that um he liked it optically without really thinking it through so he thought if this senior civil servant becomes my chief of staff it'll make it look as though i'm ready for government and it'll it'll seem as though she is this 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 trusted 
senior official is calculating that I'm going to be the next prime minister. So he thought probably it would help kind of enhance his credibility as a future prime minister if he employed her as his chief of staff without thinking through the kind of uh, political ramifications and the way it might be used to exonerate Boris by Jacob and no doubt Boris himself. Um, I think it was a political blunder on Keir Starmer's part, probably his biggest political blunder to date. But, you know, it, it is kind of a sort of, you know, dog bites man story rather than man bites dog, isn't it? I mean, shock, a senior civil servant turns out to be a Labour Party supporter. You know, who would have guessed it? Um, <laughs> uh, I think nearly all of them are. Um, so um, uh, no real surprise there. But yeah, I think uh, whether, whether in fact, uh, I mean, he's now, I guess, Starmer's now going to be embroiled in this kind of endless questioning about when he first approached her, um, has, has, what, what about the period that's supposed to elapse between, you know, being a senior civil servant and taking another job? Is she going to be paid, you know, the normal kind of um, bonus fee she gets at the end of her job? Would it jeopardize her? I mean, there are all sorts of, you know, details that people are now going to want to trawl through, all of which I think will put, well, not all of which, but some of which will be quite embarrassing for her and for Starmer. Yeah. <clears throat> so you just think it's a blunder. Interesting with the, the usual cock up over conspiracy, and uh, yeah, you may be right. I mean, Starmer's known to be sort of shrewd, but he wasn't here. But yeah, certainly we know that all civil servants are Labour. It's kind of like when Emily Maitlis left the BBC, and it's like now I can reveal my real views. I know, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> it was like it was like we all yeah, knew the, them, Emily. The, yeah, it was like yeah. The Wizard of Oz wasn't exactly the Wizard of Oz had been standing in front of the curtain. There was no one behind it. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I wonder what we're going to do about this blob being all Labour. I mean, it just it doesn't augur well for any kind of future of any kind of conservatism. So I don't, I don't know how that's, I don't know what's going to happen, but um, we're just going to be run by the, the Labour blob. Um, let's maybe move on then because we've sort of covered that one and do this Isabel Vaughan Spruce case. So I've covered this quite a lot because on my other podcast, which is called The Current Thing, I interviewed Lois McClatchy, who is part of the ADF, who have been running the legal defence for people who have allegedly transgressed in these new buffer zones, which are these exclusion zones where you're not allowed to be anywhere near an abortion clinic doing anything. And one of the things you can't do is praying in your head. And several people got arrested, including Isabel Vaughan Spruce, but they all won. And this was a, a week or two ago, they all won their case and there was no real case against them. So, and yet it suddenly happened again yesterday and Isabel Vaughan Spruce was arrested for silent prayer in the exclusion zone and for people who are saying it's not the prayer, the the police officer clearly said to her, but you've said you're engaging in prayer, which is the offense. So if we just step back and calm down, we realize that in this allegedly Christian country where the king is the supreme governor of the Church of England, you can be arrested for praying. And it is always Christian. I said Christian prayer in a tweet because it is always Christians doing it. it is, so far, it's been all Christians. And people always shout back at me and tell me, no, no, she's arrested for being in the buffer zone, it's like, yes, it's the combination of prayer in the zone. Because I've said before on this podcast, she wouldn't be arrested yet for praying at home, though I doubt it's far off. And she <laughs> wouldn't be arrested for walking through the buffer zone. So it's praying within the zone. And the, the way that people leap to the defense of this law from 10 seconds ago, have we learned nothing from lockdowns? You can come up with an arbitrary law and, and suddenly the people pretend it's like written in stone. It's like, yeah, the law is bollocks. There shouldn't be a law that you can't pray in your head in England on the street, absolute insanity. But all these people rush to defend the law. I think you'll find she was breaching the public space protection law. It's like, yeah, but that's a stupid law, and I don't recognize that law. And um, 
and it and so again, I don't know why they arrested her again because it's just been proved that these cases don't stick. But what is going on, Toby? I mean, these cases don't stick yet; they keep doing it, and they keep arresting people for praying in their heads. Well, the the, the reason she's been arrested again is because um, she's effectively got herself arrested as a way of protesting um, against uh, the clause in the public order bill, which will make the exclusion zones um, around abortion clinics, banning any kind of protest, including silent prayer, a national law. Um, uh, At the moment, um, local authorities can impose these exclusion zones. They have to go through a few hoops in order to do that. And so there are some exclusion zones in place in some places. Um, But um, she is getting arrested in order to draw attention to this clause to the um, this this I guess it's an amendment to the public order bill, um, which would roll out this policy nationally. Um, like you, I think it it does it does smack of arbitrariness. You know, why should protest against abortion be singled out as not being able to take place within a hundred yards of abortion clinics? You can easily see that same principle being applied elsewhere. For instance political protests outside the Houses of Parliament. And so I'm nervous, first of all, that um, it feels a bit arbitrary. Why is one particular point of view, why are holders of one particular point of view in a kind of contentious public debate being punished in this way? Secondly, I'm worried that um, it may not just be them in due course. Um, It'll be other protesters, people who hold other contentious, unfashionable points of view. So yeah, I think it is worrying. Andrew Lua, Conservative MP, has proposed an amendment to the amended public order bill, whereby um, silent prayer wouldn't be not allowed within the exclusion zones, and all the other things which won't be allowed um, will will be subject, the commencement of those exclusions will be subject to a much wider consultation with all the groups affected. Um, I don't know whether that's going to pass, but that seemed like quite a sensible amendment to me um, and probably the best hope of, um, of delaying anyway um, this bill being introduced and these exclusion zones being enforced. But I don't know whether he's got anywhere with it. I think the debate is taking place in Parliament as we speak. Yes, as we record this, the vote is, is, is about to happen, so we don't know which way that's going to go. But yeah, but my point is... On February 16th, Isabel Vaughan Spruce was, was cleared of all charges, as were several other people, like Father Sean Goff. Got, and, and so my point is, it's a bit like these, these lockdown, these police abuses during lockdown that never stuck. They'd, they'd charge people for walking along a beach or something, mm. and then they would never stick. The charges would never go through. It seems very much like this. This, this shall keep being arrested. One hopes that charges will keep being dropped. Maybe they won't. But she was cleared last time. So... Why do they? Why you know? Why not just realize the law itself is stupid and, and wrong? But I don't know. I mean, I'm not a legal expert, obviously, so that's my uh, layman's take on it. But um, and people have said extinction rebellion would be treated very differently, and we all know these things. We all know Christians are the the most hated people in the country. I mean, you know, if you scuff a, a Quran, as we discussed last week, you'll get a visit from the police. There'll be a whole struggle session, but you can't pray. One wonders if a Muslim was praying in the in the buffer zone, what would happen? We've, no, we've yet would, to see it. Very interesting. Very difficult dilemma for the rainbow police. <laughs> yeah, it would be a nightmare for them. All right. Well, maybe we should move on to Chris Rock because you've sort of touched on the idea of selective outrage sort of vaguely there. That's my link anyway. And his special on Netflix is called Selective Outrage. 
And it's very interesting. I've only got through 20 minutes of it because I've been too busy, but I've had a quick watch of it. Because Chris Rock, of course, was one of the great comics. He had his uh, special Bring the Pain. Then he had Bigger and Blacker. And these were the two, you know, that was the absolute height of his work. But then he went on and he did that tambourine in 2018, which was a bit woke. It was a bit weak. He'd lost it a little bit. Stand-ups are very tough. You've got to be match fit. I did it for 11 years. If you, if you have a little time off, you, you lose your match fitness. But he was the absolute, in the 90s, he was the, the man. But now he's, he's come back, he's done this one. And it's interesting because it's kind of anti-woke and kind of not. So a few things he did, even in the first 20 minutes, he said, in the old days, if somebody wanted your job, they just worked harder than you. Now, if someone wants your job, they just wait for you to say some dumb shit. <laughs> I tried to get you with one of them woke traps. So he is saying things like woke traps. He's attacking cancel culture. And he attacked Megan, saying, of course, like everyone wants to know the color of the baby. Even black people want to know that. And he attacks victim culture. But then he says white men thinking they're victims is, is stupid and wrong, which is, of course, false. White men are often victims now. But he used the January 6th. He said, why are white people wanting to overthrow their own government? Because to him, it's all just white people. Now, of course, if you see the world through a racial lens, as so many Americans do, especially if you're a black American, it seems more likely. Of course, it's just different kinds of white people. But if you're a white person, you, you see it in terms of class. And we realize that most of the white people don't have any power. So that's the way I would see it. But it's interesting. It's kind of half what, I mean, Chris Rock's always been a mix. Back in the day, in his old specials, he used to say things like, I've got shit I'm conservative about, I've got shit I'm Democrat about. And that's the kind of thing you used to be able to say then. You can't even really say that now, but he's kind of gone back to that. He's attacking wokeness to a degree. He says, I'm all for wokeness, helping marginalized people, but I can't stand the selective outrage. So Shapiro, Ben Shapiro has t- taken this as a great win for conservatives and said, Rock is basically sounding like a conservative. I think that's going a bit far. But what was your take, Toby? Yeah, I've actually seen the show. Um, so I don't know if we discussed it on this podcast, but I went and saw him and Dave Chappelle at the O2. And um, I thought Rock's, Rock was pretty entertaining, quite funny in places. Um, but I, I think Ben Shapiro is right in this respect. I don't think he has any kind of principled, considered position on woke authoritarianism um i think i think he 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 just feels which way the wind is blowing um and and so he now he recognizes that it it's now relatively safe to kind of trespass in that territory whereas dave Chappelle, you got the impression that it comes from a much deeper and more considered place and he is actually you know a proper civil libertarian um and and loathes and detests wokeness at a kind of visceral level um uh, and is also i think much funnier um so he's like uh, you know different different class altogether i think from from chris rock um but nonetheless chris rock was pretty funny in places and i saw him do that routine um and the bit i didn't like about it was when he's sort of ridiculing megan he ridicules her for for saying that she didn't realize that the royal family was racist when she married into the royal family and he thinks that was just how could she be so naive she can't really have been that naive he then says of course the royal family are racist they're the ogs of racism and goes on at length about it. he just takes it for granted you know that of course because they are the royal family of a majority white country and because their predecessors presided over the british empire of course they're racist which i thought was a bit flippant and um irritating stopped laughing at that point but then started laughing again <laughs> when uh, when he when he talked about the black baby thing so 
um, uh, I think the sole piece of evidence that Meghan was able to marshal in the case for the prosecution that the royal family is racist, that a member of the royal family had inquired to another member of the royal family, not to her or to Harry, I don't think, um, about what colour the baby was likely to be, given that she... Uh, she, she has what mixed heritage um, herself, and um, uh, and she thought that was evidence of racism. And, and um, Chris Rock, you know, uh, ridicules her for, for for that because he, as he points out, black people um, uh, are constantly asking about the color of unborn black children or children of mixed race marriages. Um, it's it's absolutely, you know, he says they check, they even check behind the ear um of of a baby to see what color it's likely to turn out to be when it grows up as though that's a scientific test um uh, he ridicules them for thinking it's a scientific test anyway uh, but in, in the version i saw but i don't think is included in the special that was on netflix and which we're all talking about now in the version i saw he said that's when i knew megan doesn't have any black friends because if she did she'd know that that was absolutely ubiquitous in the black community um uh, asking about the likely skin color of unborn babies. Um, and I thought that was very, I thought that was a really damning point and I'm sure absolutely spot on, uh, but unfortunately left it out of um, the, ne- the, the Netflix special. Yeah. I think it's not in the Netflix special. That could be because it was so heavily leaked because everyone knew it at the time. And then that kind of ruined your material. No one's going to last. It could Maybe. just be that, but um, yeah, you're right. Dave Spell is, is the man now he's, he's, he's on a different level to rock rock in the nineties was, was the man, but People write for Chris Rock as well, of course. Louis C.K.'s written for him. He may even have something to do with this one. And so there is that aspect. Yes, it, so it's not, not quite as deeply felt, but it, it, interesting that it's a target. And you've seen South Park. It's like so obviously that we should be able to take the piss out of Megan. If we can't, then it's just it's, it's absurd. So, yeah, maybe comedy is coming back. Would be nice to see, wouldn't it? Um, but it, 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 what's interesting is that um, comedians are now satirists and comedians are now the only people who are allowed to criticize Megan. I mean, she's trying to stop it, but it doesn't look like she'll succeed. I mean, you know, if, if you or I went on, you know, even GB News, well, I suppose you we would, we, we wouldn't probably get censured by Ofcom. But do you remember when I think when Julia Hartley Brewer criticized her on this morning um ofcom opened an investigation in response to a complaint about it ofcom also investigated piers morgan for criticizing Meghan markle and he ended up losing his job um at good morning britain was it good morning britain or whatever it was yeah um uh, so you know you only if you're a comedian you can speak truth to power but if you're a journalist no not in certain areas well, hopefully my 11 years of stand-up comedy then would, would get me off. I mean, interesting yeah. test between me and you. We both attack Megan in the same exact way. Both we call her a silly bitch. An <laughs> experiment, see, yeah. Yeah, and I just say, it's satire, guys. My sh- <laughs> we do have a little bit of leeway on Headliners and Free Speech Nation because we are at comedy shows, so we do have more leeway than the news presenters. So hopefully, yeah, I'd just show one of my stand-up videos and be, look, I can't possibly have meant this. Toby, however, is a serious journalist who definitely yeah, meant we, we, it. I don't think we should do Megan, though, because I think – one of the great things about her being attacked by, or attacked, ridiculed, I'm using her language, one of the great things about her being sent up by South Park and now by Chris Rock is that it opens the door for people, for kind of lesser mortals than stand-up comics to be able to criticise her. So I think to do a true test, we'd need to find something else that it's not yet permissible to criticise. You do it in comedy, I do it in a column, we see what happens. Yes. Although, of course, your profile is much bigger as well, so you probably would get most of the heat. But, uh, yeah, I'm trying to think who would be a good example. Who who, who can't you criticise anymore? We, we could sure. both defend Prince Andrew. 
<laughs> so what? See if what he you like about him. He did military service. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He did his military service. He's been a he's been a stalwart of the royal family. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> did that. You see, Clarkson got voted sexiest man. Did you see that? Oh, I didn't see that. No, it just popped into my head. Yeah, yeah, because he sort of yeah, Clarkson's back. Yeah, he got despite the funny. It was a really funny headline. Like despite you know misogynist comments or something vile comment he gets voted sexist so obviously no one cares about <laughs> no one really cares about the stuff he said except a certain outraged class as chris rock says selective outrage yeah i'm with you on the rock special when he suddenly says that he ods of racism the royal family he called them the sugar hill gang of racism then i'm like calm down chris and when he says victim culture is bad i'm like yes and he goes white men aren't victims i'm like no we are so yeah i'm like you i sort of <laughs> But that's what good comedy should do, one could argue. It should be sort of both sides and, and question your assumptions. So check out that special. We don't get any money for it. I don't know why I'm promoting it. But um, do you want to quickly do an, our very occasional spot, Toby, which I like doing, called the Top G Spot, which is, of course, about my friend oh, Andrew yeah. Tate. And people write to me all the time, love your what you do, Nick. Not sure about your dedication to Tate. And they always question me, and I get in a lot of trouble for it. And people share that photo of me and try and get me in trouble, even though the photo is still up on my Instagram. It's not up on my Twitter because I accidentally deleted it. But it's, uh, yeah, I, I met Tate. I thought he was a good guy. I stick by it. I don't believe the charges. And anyway, but this rumor came out that Tate had lung cancer. So I was obviously very worried as a, as a friend of his, and a lot of us were worried. And, um, and, and he thought, yeah, he does look very bad in prison. This may not be true, but you know you wouldn't. You, there was rumors he'd been to hospital already early on in his prison stays, so you do you did worry. But then there came out this thing: no, he didn't have it, and that there was a scan going around saying it was like basically benign, and that he'd actually had the scan in Dubai. Then he seemed, he seemed to confirm this with his tweet. He said, "I do not have cancer. My lungs contain precisely zero smoking damage because people were saying it was from cigars." In fact, I have an eight liter lung capacity and the vital signs of an Olympic athlete, classic Tate. There is nothing but a scar on my lung from an old battle. True warriors are scarred both inside and out. As one of the most influential men on the face of the planet, it is important for the good of humanity that I live as long as possible. At my current strength levels, I estimate to survive for at least 5,000 more years. With this in mind, I take my medical care extremely seriously. I had a regular checkup organized in Dubai pre-detention. The doctors were extremely interested in the scar on my lung. They do not understand how I survive without treatment. They do not know the secrets of Wudan, but this battle has long passed. So he's claiming like he just always had the scar because obviously he'd gotten a lot of fights as a professional kickboxer. He's not dying and he's going to survive 5,000 years. But it is shocking. We've seen how bad he looks in prison. It is shocking how quickly they can destroy someone with Tate, isn't it? We got Really, the height, he went from the absolute top, private jets, Bugattis, you know, multiple hoes, as to use his phraseology, and then just the absolute <laughs> bottom of looking bedraggled and pretty rough in a Romanian prison, detained indefinitely with no trial, with seemingly pretty sketchy evidence. It does show how terrifyingly quickly they, whoever they are, can take you out. What do you think, Toby? Yeah, um, I'm slightly suspicious of um, your use of the word, your promiscuous use of the word friend. <laughs> So I, 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 I remember once uh, I was um, having a drink with Christopher Hitchens at Elaine's on the Upper East Side um, in New York in like, I don't know, 98. And um, uh, it was impossible to have any kind of conversation with him because a string of admirers just kept coming up and 
interrupting and and striking up a conversation with him and they were and 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 they were all fans of his devoted fans who were delighted to to suddenly see him in the flesh and um and and i said to him you know it must be quite nice um having all these these people come up and tell you how fantastic you are the whole time he said well the thing is they all think they're my friend because um you know i might have replied to an email or because they've seen me on tv and tv's quite an intimate medium i've been in their living room so they all think of me as a friend so they expect me to you know have a proper heart to heart with each of them and you know it, it can be it, it, the the real risk is that if you disappoint them in some way if you don't give them you know the time they think they're entitled to um as you as 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 your friend um then uh, they can turn turn on a dime and suddenly get nasty and say oh what too big for me are you christopher <laughs> you know and i feel like i feel like rather worry that uh, you know i know you've met andrew tate um uh, he came into gb news and you met him in the urinals i'm just slightly worried that you, <laughs> you, you, you next time you see him, you might say andrew andrew top g top g <laughs> and he's going to kind of give you a slightly quizzical you go don't you remember me i'm your friend i'm nick <laughs> and he, he get ugly after that you might a well, I'm not sure head. why I've got a Cockney <laughs> accent, but yeah, I, I, when, when you say met in the urinals, Toby, you've got to be very careful spraying around that kind of language, no pun intended, because we were met in, a, in fact, it's a unisex toilet, there's no urinals, it's all cubicles, and as I famously said, Tate went with the door open to the cubicle in a unisex bathroom, because that is how he rolls, and we had a good chat. Now, I'm totally joking when I say he's my friend, but I'm not joking when I say I have a weird empathy for him and fear when I heard his health was bad, I felt bad as if I knew him. Maybe that's because I'm just so empathetic, as people have said on my other podcast. And, um, you know, I have my own fans, Toby. I have my own, you know, aggressive fan base. And uh, someone in, on my other podcast reviewed it and they ended in, the review ended with a marriage proposal because they love me that much. So I, I, I sort of on a small level understand wow. what it's like to be Tate and have these fans. But yeah. I, I'm at the level where I can I give them the attention. Carry on. I, I sometimes, very occasionally, get people coming up and saying, nice things to me but more often it's people coming up and wanting to pick an argument about something i saw you on gb news last night saying you thought it was all uh the, the lockdown wasn't necessary are you crazy my uncle died of covid19 i get that that must have been a bit of a nightmare during the uh height of the pandemic but they're all yeah. shouting at you through a, a double mask in outside that's true couldn't really hear what they were saying <laughs> yeah so far it's all been nice to me i've had people come up to me in sainsbury's and one on oxford street and it's all been nice so far but i'm sure one day i'll reach your level of hate toby um do you want to do? Uh, oh no! Is, do we do our ad now? Let's do our first ad. Yeah, let, let, let's 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 do our ad. We've only oh, got yeah. one. It's our first um, of one. Incredibly, Nick, because <laughs> we are Britain's fastest growing podcast. So why we've only got one is slightly Mad. mysterious. But uh, yeah, if anyone would like to advertise on the Weekly Skeptic, email me on thedailyskeptic at gmail.com. You'll find our rates are very competitive and you will attract a lot of customers if you advertise on the Weekly Skeptic, which is why Thor is um, uh, advertising with us again and again. He knows how effective uh, the the ads on this podcast are. So we both know Thor. He's provided pro bono counsel to free speech union victims of cancel culture since we launched. And he would love to connect with fellow Weekly Skeptic listeners for encouragement, laughs, and community. And you can connect with Thor on linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt or via his Substack thorholt.substack.com when thor isn't supporting fsu members in the eye of a twitter storm he helps others in a tight spot for example an sme facing 20 percent redundancies worked with thor and within four months landed 
£20.4 million of new contract value, avoided redundancies and secured a 10-year project pipeline. Thor is a trusted executive coach and advisor for those looking to bring in investment or even exit their business. And he has a strong track record of transforming professionals in multiple sectors into confident, strategic, deal-winning presenters. Thor would love to hear from you, even if you don't require his services at the moment. And do please mention The Weekly Skeptic. You can find him on linkedin.com slash in slash Thor Holt or thorholt.substack.com. All right, well, now let's go over to Will for the serious bit. So I'm here with Dr. Will Jones, editor of The Daily Skeptic, and we've got some interesting stories this week. Some of them are a bit technical. Let's kick off with this one. mRNA vaccines contain DNA that may turn human cells into long-term spike protein factories sounds like bad news for the non-purebloods will uh that's right nick yeah this is a, a worrying a worrying study about the vaccines and contamination that's been found in them by a crack team of analysts uh, and scientists uh, led by dr kevin mckernan medicinal genomics and they've analyzed the contents of the uh, vaccines this is the pfizer and moderna vaccines the mrna vaccines as we know and they've analyzed their contents and they found in them these DNA rings, they're called plasmids, um, they're, they're stable DNA rings uh, that uh, they can enter bacteria inside, and we have lots of bacteria inside us, they can enter bacteria inside humans, and they can self-replicate inside the bacteria, so they can make more of themselves, and what the DNA does is the DNA does the same as the mRNA, it produces the spike protein, the spike protein for of coronavirus for the vaccine. And so any bacteria inside humans who that take this on, they can create more of these plasmids. And they can also, we assume, it hasn't been proven yet, but we assume that they will produce the spike protein very worrying, and they will do it. And because it's DNA, not mRNA, uh, they will uh, they will do it indefinitely, the plasmids are stable, they will sit there. Um, and what's more, these plasmids are specially produced ones, they're not natural ones. And so they will also be able to enter and do the same thing, we, we believe, again, hasn't been completely proven yet, but there is no reason why they shouldn't be able to enter human cells, not just the bacteria inside humans, but actual human cells themselves and do the same trick. The reason they're there, in case you're wondering, is because they're they're the way that the vaccines are made. They're, they're a central, integral part of the manufacturing process. They're the way that that the mRNA is created, that the, the this is the DNA that creates the mRNA that makes up the vaccines, but they're supposed to be removed. They're supposed to be completely or almost completely removed. There's a maximum level that they're allowed to have in them of this contaminant, and it's set at one plasmid per 3,000 mRNA molecules. That Why that's considered a safe level, especially when they are self-replicating is unclear and the researchers question whether that's really a safe level in the first place because after all a single shot contains trillions of mRNA particles which means it will contain billions of these plasmids even if they're there at one per 3,000 but in any case that's considered to be the safe level the Moderna vaccine just about hits that safe level so they have are complying with that whether or not it's actually safe but the Pfizer vaccine was 10 times higher concentration of that at one plasmid per 350 mRNA molecules so the researchers are suggesting that this may be a reason why the spike protein uh, has been found to persist inside the vaccinated uh, people being produced by the body weeks months after vaccination and this 
persistence of the spike protein has been linked to side effects, uh, to ongoing damage of um, organs such as the heart. And so this may well be the or a way that uh, that, that, that happens. More research is needed, uh, but this is very good research by a very knowledgeable team and certainly raises some very serious worries, particularly about the Pfizer vaccine, but also about the Moderna one. So the spike protein is not supposed to be there, but it's, it stays in. It's only there for manufacturing. So it's kind of like we've eaten the packaging by mistake. Yeah, yeah. More apt uh, analogy would be we've eaten the machine uh, that made the uh, the spike protein so that it will carry on making it yeah, inside wow. us. Um, and of course, it's designed to make make more of it, but it's, it's designed to be the mRNA, which quickly, supposedly quickly disappears. Um, that also is unclear whether that actually happens. Um, and there's also questions about whether the mRNA gets integrated into our DNA in, in cells. And that may be another way that spike protein persists. But this is another way. And it's like keeping the machines in there uh, to keep on making it um, uh, for long term. Yeah, not good. Wow. Well, I say we, of course, no one on this podcast, but I don't fully understand it. But I'm glad I haven't had it. That's all I'm going to say on that. But let's do this one. Number of births in England falls by 11.9%. And because we already have a catastrophically low birth rate. And this is from the Naked Emperor. Well, yeah, interesting name, this uh, this blogger. He's uh, got a substack, and uh, we reprinted one of his excellent articles about the birth rate in England falling by nearly 12%, uh, 11.9% in 2022 compared to 2021. That's significant. It's obviously significant in itself, and whatever the cause of it needs to be looked at and explained and explored because because 12% fall, as you say, on, on an already historically low birth rate is is a worry in itself. It's a particular worry uh, from the point of view of the of COVID and the vaccines because it corresponds to the period after nine months or several months after the vaccines were rolled out to uh, women of childbearing age and to pregnant women. So the question is whether it's related to that. The evidence we, that keeps being churned out on this uh, from official sources um, and other studies is very mixed. They keep putting out uh, the UKHSA, for example, official government statistics uh, put out studies and reports that claim that the vaccines are safe uh, during pregnancy. But the Naked Emperor um, points out that they're that this is that only covers the period when women are vaccinated during pregnancy. There's all kinds of problems with studies that only look at that period, uh, which I can't uh, go into here because of uh, time, but it's not a reliable way of studying something. But they don't publish on other significant questions around pregnancy and vaccines. And Naked Emperor points out that the inflection point, if you like, from when the birth rate declines is corresponds and coincides with when the vaccine rollout was at its um, at its peak so could be a coincidence he goes through a few other possibilities of what it could be they they each seem to have problems as an explanation and so he raises the question and says this needs to be probably looked into and that's all we can do because we're not he is not and we are not uh, professional scientists Um, we're not uh, people we're not government um, scientists and officials we don't we don't have access to all the data we don't we don't have access to the funding etc that we need to do this research all we can do is point out these correlations and say this needs to be properly looked into and that's and that's what we keep on doing because because it's yet again a worrying trend, whatever the cause, a worrying trend, with yet again this disturbing apparent correlation with vaccines. Yeah, all right, absolutely. Um, what about this one? Doubling of hormone prescriptions since 2020 raises fresh vaccine concerns. Yeah, so our last uh, vaccine story for uh, this week. 
we have a, a piece from our regular uh, writer, Amanuensis, a pseudonym for an uh, ex-academic and uh, government senior government scientist. And uh, he has been looking through the data on the prescriptions on conditions that people have and the drugs that they're being, they've been given. And he's been looking at uh, various uh, conditions, various drugs. And this article, he has been looking at hormones, in particular sex hormones, such as HRT in particular, hormone replacement therapy, often given to uh, women at uh, around the menopause uh, to uh, help address some of the uh, symptoms that come from that uh, hormonal change. And he's found that a striking huge increase in conditions, consultations, drugs um, around these hormones in 2021. So after, again, it's it appears to coincide, again, these are just correlations, appears to coincide with the vaccine rollout. So in the vaccine period, he's noted that endocrinology consultations, um, so that's hormone-related consultations in the NHS, we're up uh, 29% in 2021 uh, compared to previous years. And if you, you can see the graph in, the, in his post and the, uh, the rise is, is very striking. It's, it's almost flat and then moves to another, another almost flat level, but it's elevated. And he also looks at uh, the prescription of female sex hormones. Uh, so this is for HRT uh, in particular. And you can just see that doubling uh, just and from a flat level from 2018 to 2021. Uh, just suddenly starts to increase in the uh, spring of 2021 and to a level double that. Some people in the comments have said, ah, oh, but isn't this just because the of the raising awareness and the change in attitudes around um, HRT uh, with, you know, uh, Davina McCall and uh, other people raising these things around the around the menopause. And they say that people have been, doctors have become less worried about uh, side effects, etc. Well, possibly, uh, but Emanuensis points out that there hasn't there hasn't been any formal change in prescribing policy around HRT or these drugs uh, in this period. So there's nothing formal. Plus, he also looks at uh, treatment for uh, vaginal and vulval conditions and finds that in the same period, uh, those have also uh, increased in the same uh, to the same extent. So worrying evidence. We know that the vaccines. Uh, have been shown to gather in the female reproductive system in particular. That was shown in early distribution studies, although those were hidden. They were kept secret and only brought out with uh, freedom of information requests. We know that the uh, Project Veritas Pfizer sting from a couple of weeks back, the executive who was uh, caught in that did mention the fact that they had come across this worrying uh, trend and even expressed worries about what they might have done to the next uh, generation of women and the babies they would have. So the possibility is certainly known about, including by Pfizer. So, so this data supports that worrying possibility. And again, we just have to say it just needs to be looked into properly by the people whose job it is and who have the resources to do that. And and in the meantime, they need to stop being so confident um, about these the supposed uh, safety of these experimental drugs. You just reminded me we actually did cover a version of this story on headliners on GB News. But they very much went with the Davina McCall angle. The vaccine wasn't mentioned. So we, we should say that Davina McCall does work and she is safe and effective. But yeah, they said it was due to her show that people are suddenly going in more or her recommendation or whatever. But yeah, interesting. So we'll give you a completely different take on Daily Skeptic. And by the way, I did recommend on Headliners last night, I said, if you want to 
get the truth on climate goes to Daily Skeptic because we did a piece on The Guardian about methane, methane super emitters. And I said The Guardian newspaper was one of the biggest super emitters of methane. But I said, if you want to get the truth, go to Chris Morrison. And the reason I'm saying that is we've got two stories from Chris here. And the first one is half the world faces starvation under net zero policies, according to two top climate scientists, Will. Yeah, yes. This is a major report from um, emeritus professors William Happer and Richard Lindzen um, of Princeton and MIT, respectively. And so uh, ma- major figures, physics background, climate climate physics, proper hard scientists, you might say, none of this wishy-washy, newfangled specialist climate uh, jobs. And they are very worried about net zero. They have said that the global movement to eliminate fossil fuels, carbon dioxide emissions, is scientifically invalid and a threat, they say, to the lives of billions of people. And they say it will result in about half the world's population not having enough food to eat. And that's in particular in relation to trying to eliminate eliminate, uh, fossil fuel-derived nitrogen fertilizers and pesticides so the impact on farming so we just we just very quickly trying to undo so many modern developments innovations really crucial innovations uh, in the last hundred or so years uh, just trying to undo them without without the, having the technology to replace them and so that's a big problem and these scientists they uh, they go through uh, looking at the data they're, they're very concerned that that the data and the, and the science that's being used is very skewed. It's very politicised. It's quite clear that the IPCC process is heavily politicised, especially the executive summary that's presented for policymakers. Um, it's a political document. And anything that contra- any, any findings in science, and there's an awful lot of it, that contradicts the, that, that, that net zero climate change alarmist narrative is is just excluded it's adjusted away some of the data some of the crucial data um, or it's just not mentioned and very selectively presented so they are they're, they're key figures in a in a major pushback movement uh, to try to bring some perspective and some fact-based evidence-based science uh, to the debate yes very much like lockdowns one wonders if anyone is actually following the science i feel like we need a net zero files so i don't know if it'll change anyone's mind well, we had that see. with um, climate, the climate gate uh, emails, didn't we? From uh, that was back in oh, that's oh, two thousand nine, wasn't it? So long time, long time. That was the that long time ago. That was the equivalent where the the emails from uh, climate scientists at the, U, at the University of East Anglia were leaked, showing that they were hiding the decline and that they were trying to because it was the middle of the pause, of course, the very long pause in in the increase in temperatures that happened from uh, about 2000 till uh, the big El Nino of uh, 2016. In the middle of that, they were very getting very worried about the lack of warming and were and they were caught in these emails actively trying to hide, like Matt Hancock, <laughs> actively trying to hide the uh, the unfavourable evidence. How dare you criticise Hancock? But let's, let's end on this one, from also from Chris. New scientific evidence suggests temperatures have been stable in Greenland for 60 years. Yeah, it's a good example of exactly what I was just talking about, the uh, the unfavourable evidence that you won't hear from the mainstream media. Chris reporting it for The Daily Skeptic. And this is a new study from a group of environmental meteorologists that have found that in the last 60 years, Greenland has, has had te- stable temperatures, so no global warming, except for one year, in one year, uh, 1994, where, or around 1994, where, it, uh, where temperatures leapt up from one 
stable level to a higher stable level of about one degree. So you no, know, so a decent jump. It's not it's not a steady warming that you would might expect uh, if it was the result of the increasing CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, which we're obviously very aware that CO2 has been increasing its concentration in the atmosphere. And since 1994, that's that that pause that we're talking about, um, again, just very, very little. And this is significant because the Arctic is constantly highlighted as a as a place where there's a lot of warming uh, happening uh, more than in uh, many other parts of the world. For example, the Antarctic, where there's basically zero warming, Another big embarrassment for the alarmist, but the the Arctic generally fits fits the alarmist pattern, um, and so we hear quite a lot about it. But this study really uh, cast doubt on that um, because uh, this is a part near the Arctic which r- really isn't fitting with that alarmist pattern. And they and the researchers themselves say that uh, that large scale atmospheric circulation variabilities they just mean natural variation that's going on in the in the atmosphere can effectively explain this multi-decade uh, variability of the Greenland uh, temperature so uh, so yeah blending on natural factors as well so even the so even what uh, this this one degree rise that they observe in 1994 this uh, this jump uh, they're not blaming it on co2 so more evidence uh, that the mainstream alarmist narrative is not to be trusted and the need to look deeper yep so if you want the truth as always go to dailyskeptic.org not the mainstream media. And thanks very much, Will. And we'll see you again next week. Great. Thanks, Nick. All right. So that was Will Jones. I'm back with Toby. And now it's time for everyone's favorite section. It's Peak Woke. So, Toby, I have a few Peak Wokes this week. Do you have anything really pressing you want to go with? I've only got one. So why don't you go first, then I'll do mine, then you okay. can do another one. Well, I have a few. This one was The Guardian who were obsessed with uh, with changing the landscape of the English countryside. And there was a piece from Dan Guthrie saying, the English countryside can still feel off limits to people of colour. We are working to change that. I'll be honest with you, I didn't really read the article because the headline was so annoying. But they've done this before, this whole the countryside is too white thing. You know, an 80-something percent white country, as if everyone has to do everything, as if it matters that white people seem to like hill walking more. Uh, there was also this Brownie song, and the original version... Oh, oh, that's, that's my one. one. That's okay. my one. Well, I'll, that's you, my only okay. one. Okay. Well, do you want to do that one then? <laughs> well, I, I, I was I was going to do the yeah the the yeah the 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 censored brownie song. So campfire songs enjoyed by generations of girl guides have had their lyrics changed to cut out any references to God because um, uh, referencing God means that the songs aren't inclusive enough. I suppose um, uh, they might. I suppose Muslim brownies. Um, well, that's an unfortunate combination of words. I mean, um, Muslim girl guides um, might feel um, excluded if uh, they're expected to sing about God rather than Allah. Um, anyway, um, uh, yeah, this was uh, pretty shocking, but I think it's actually ultimately quite helpful for the kind of anti-woke cause. It feels like another example of overreach, like sanitizing the Roald Dahl books. It's like some things are just sacred. Um, and the Brownies campfire songs, you can't mess with them. That is a step too far. I think it will turn people off and make them realize that these people are authoritarian zealots who will stop at nothing to erase all traces of our history and Christian heritage from our culture. So I think it's helpful. Okay, yeah, and the actual lyrics change was um, there was this brownie song that was 
O Lord our God, thy children call. Grant us thy peace and bless us all. Good night, good night. And they change that to time for the end, our meetings past. Brownies is great. Time flies so fast. Good night. I'm a brownie. You're a brownie. Brownies all around the world. Good night, brownies everywhere. So it's taking out the Christian element again. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Pretty and and so poorly written compared to the yes. original. And another one was this drag show for babies, which I'll be honest, I've kind of forgotten where it was. We covered it a few days ago on GB, and it was just another one of these drag shows and pretty appalling. And the usual woke people were kind of defending it somehow. And um, I didn't, it was pretty disgusting stuff. And David Aronovich was saying, oh, it's not a big deal. It's just like pantomime, which it obviously isn't. And then another one is Michael Knowles got in trouble at CPAC for talking about transgenderism. And this is a kind of a peak woke. He said, for the good of society and especially the good of the poor people who've fallen prey to this confusion, transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely, the whole preposterous ideology. And Rolling Stone replied with this, and they came and, and they sort of did these hit pieces on him. Rolling Stone said, CPAC speaker calls for transgender people to be eradicated. The Daily Peace said, Michael Knowles says transgender community must be eradicated at CPAC. Then he threatened them both with libel and they changed the headline. Obviously very different to say the ideology of transness that's you know got into every institution is dangerous for children. It's very different from let's wipe them all out in a genocide. Yeah, it's difficult to know exactly what what sort of underpins that misunderstanding? I mean, is it is it a deliberate misunderstanding in an attempt to cancel Michael Knowles? That's probably the most obvious explanation. But on the other hand, um, quite often trans activists will claim that if you challenge any aspect of trans ideology, you are seeking to erase them, to erase their identity. And I suppose, you know, maybe that claim should at some level be taken seriously. I mean, if their identity if the thing which is most important to them, which they think is at the absolute center of their existence, depends upon believing that sex is a spectrum, it's a choice, it's not binary, it's not immutable, but can change according to how you feel, then if you challenge that, if you say, no, that's at odds with biological reality, it is binary, it's not just true of the human species, it's true of many other species, um, you're simply mistaken about that, then in a sense, I suppose, you are erasing their identity. It's not quite the same as genocide, is it? I mean, what's wrong with, what's wrong with, with that is y- y- just because your identity is contingent upon um, uh, other people not challenging your bizarre philosophical beliefs, that's not, a, that's not a reason to be able to censor people and impose, you know, unofficial blasphemy laws. We see exactly the same thing going on, you know, in Wakefield with the poor, poor, poor boys who were kind of persecuted for uh, supposedly damaging a copy of the Quran. It's, it's, it's as though the Muslims are saying, we require everyone, including people outside our community, to respect our speech codes. It's exactly the same as trans people saying everyone should be required to use our preferred gender pronouns. Uh, but that's illiberal. You know, we can't all coexist in these different communities, but uh, that, that every other community abide by its own bizarre speech codes based on its peculiar philosophical beliefs. So it felt like this was an example of that. Interesting point. And also, just while we're on this, someone called Reverend. Dr. Jackie Lewis said, you can't eradicate transgenderism without violence against trans siblings. People don't simply cease to exist. So she was claiming it is a sort of genocide. And in the reply to her own tweet as part of her own thread, a few minutes later, she said, I just dream about a world where we spend the amount of energy, time and money we currently waste on bigotry to eradicate poverty, 
homelessness, hunger, and medical debt. So she wanted to eradicate poor people then, presumably. I mean, she just undermined <laughs> her own point in the next tweet. Absolutely amazing. So these are the people we're up against. All right, so that's peak woke. I don't know which the peakest woke is of all those. Maybe the brownies song, but uh, the listener can decide. We can and, uh, share the honours on time. that one. We can okay, share the honours because the honors. You, you, you came up with that one as well. Yes, that was a prominent one this week. All right, well, do you want to... I'm going to have to step out, Toby. I've got a bad throat anyway. And do you want to bring on um, our special guest who's who's here again? Yeah, we're, we're, we're delighted to have um, Dr. Peterson with us um, this week. And um, you've been sending us your questions to you'd like to ask Dr. Peterson, which is great. And if you do have any questions for Dr. Peterson, uh, don't hesitate to get in touch, thedailyskeptic at gmail.com. So the first question, Dr. Peterson, is... As follows, I have it. This is from someone called Martin. I have a problem with a friend. He supports Manchester United, but also supports Man City. He has spent so much time sitting on the fence that his ass is now used as a tool to guarantee fence alignment. He's a brave guy, but his ass has so many splinters from the fence that the fence has become part of him. Should I part company with this friend? I know it's a complicated question. Well, Turns out to be a pretty complicated question, which I know he said, but just to reiterate, because, well, Manchester City are a, a bought team with no history, and someone paid a lot of money, and suddenly they're good. And Whereas Manchester United, of course, have a long history, and are the pride of all Europe, the cock of the north, we hate the Scousers, the Cockneys, of course, and Leeds. Anyway, but as a Canadian, I don't really follow soccer. However, as a child, I did play as a young man, and I remember the team was quite rough, you might say, and, and I was more intellectual, and they used to call me the doctor, even though I didn't have a PhD at that time. And I remember saying to them, you're, you're devolving to the lowest form of Jungian archetypes. And they said to me, well, they didn't say anything. They just gave me a massive wedgie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I blacked out, and by the time I recovered, everybody had gone, and I was alone in the changing room. So that's my experience with soccer, so I hope that helps in some way. Thank you, Dr. Peterson. It's very helpful. And um, so here's another question. This is our final question uh, this afternoon. Uh, Dear Dr. Peterson, I'm due to attend a fancy dress party and my favoured costume, even though once enthusiastically supported by your illustrious Canadian leader, is now unacceptable. Termed blackface, it is now viewed as a combination of, of systematic racism and cultural appropriation. However, I've discovered that there is an acceptable, even celebrated, but rather similar form of garb known as drag queen. It is a socially acceptable alternative that can be worn not just for fancy dress, but also for casual wear, entertainment purposes, and apparently teaching children about sex. If I, a white heteronormative male, combined blackface with drag queen and attended the party as a drag queen of color would that be acceptable well this is a pretty complicated question because uh, trudeau as you've said he has been getting away with blackface and he's a bloody idiot and i'm ashamed to say he's the leader of my country and it's a disgrace and i said i've tried to debate him on many occasions and uh, about uh, blackface and jean piaget but uh, he's declined me on every occasion because he says Piaget is a boring weirdo and you should stop talking about him. But anyways, there is a contradiction here between drag queens, which people have called a kind of woman face, which is true. Why is, why is that not woman face, but black face is black face? Anyways, my solution is to, in my new series for the Daily Wire, 
called Jordan Peterson does drag. I I'll be appearing in both drag and in, in blackface as a way of taking the power away from these terms and bringing us all back together and focusing on what we can do, like cleaning our rooms and fixing the infrastructure like the men do at night in the high-vis jackets when they work on the phone lines and they keep everything working. And anyway, I can't talk about it without getting emotional. But the point is, I recommend going to a party dressed as a black person who's also a woman. So, so I hope that helps. <laughs> Dress up as Oprah Winfrey. Um, okay, good. Thank you very much, Dr. Peterson. That was very helpful as usual. So, Nick, All right. come, come back into the studio. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll come back in. Thanks to thanks to Dr. Peterson, and hopefully, you can join us again next week. He does make time in his busy schedule, even though, and he does it outside of his Daily Wire contract, which is particularly uh, generous of him. So. Anything else, Toby? Do you want me to just go yeah. through a, f- a well, couple we, of reviews, we, perhaps? We let's hear from the reviews, but we should also tell our listeners that um, we are we are having to cancel our proposed um, live recording of this podcast on April first. Not because it was only ever an April Fool, but because there's going to be a train strike. Uh, we belatedly discovered on April the first, and we think we have fans in every part of the country and we don't want to make it hard for them to get to london to come and see us so um we're going to put it back to another date um uh we let did we land on the other date nick i think um uh, yeah i think we um i can't remember whether we did or not but anyway may 20th has been mentioned may 20th i think yeah i think that was the date um anyway we'll um uh we'll 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 confirm that next week and we'll announce where Tickets can be bought, um, and it will still go ahead, just not on April 1st. So apologies to anyone um, who has actually made any arrangements for April the 1st. Um, uh, But Nick has very kindly uh, agreed to have dinner with you if you are coming up to London that day um, uh, to entertain you in person. Uh, So uh, uh, hopefully uh, you won't be too put out. I don't recall that, but I I was going to say that the people who've already booked for April 1st, Toby has offered to reimburse you. For your accommodation, <laughs> that's the that's what I heard. But um, we've all got different we, ideas. Go on. We, did, we did hear from 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 a very nice lady who said that she had in fact made travel arrangements for April first, and um, and that if 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 it wasn't if it, if, it, if we cancelled, she would take Nick home with her back to Yorkshire. I think it is. Um, so uh, anyway, I do feel rather sorry for that lady, and um, hopefully <laughs> she can she can get get her travel costs reimbursed and come and join us on May the May the twentieth. I feel sorry for anyone that has to go home with me, Toby. But the <laughs> the uh, yeah, it might there's some confusion about venues and stuff, and who's booked when. So, but hopefully that it will be then. And I'm sorry about that, everyone, but it'll still happen. And let's just do a couple of reviews. So here's one: real news. Recently found this podcast, and what an absolute joy! Fabulous listening and very educational, and humor too. Thank you to everyone involved. This podcast is now a firm favorite. So that's good, Doctor Peterson. This one's called, I have a cracked rib nearly healed until I just listened to Dr. Two Vaginas Peterson. I laughed so much my coffee came down my nose and my rib opened up again. See you guys next week for more pain. So this is <laughs> someone who's taken the advice, Toby, of Dr. Peterson. For some reason, they find it amusing, even though, obviously, Dr. Peterson offers some very good advice. <laughs> but I suppose each yeah, to but... his own. <laughs> and there are many more, but they're too praising of me, Toby, and I know how that winds you up, so I'm not going to read them all, but... <laughs> But there's a couple, and by all means, give it a five-star review on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts, write us a review, and we will read them out, and, and they're very much appreciated, and they keep us going in this cold, cold world. And 
you can also, if Toby doesn't mind me saying, listen to my other podcast, which is called The Current Thing. I just had uh, old Francis Foster on of, of Trigonometry. And um, despite me sometimes having a, a lighthearted pop at Trigonometry, it's always a, a joke because he is a good guy. And that's got um, some amazing views as well. That's up on 4.9 out of uh, 70 ratings. And I've just seen one called The Thinking Man's James Delingpole, but I won't read it because it's the wrong podcast, but I'll four, read that four, later. 4.9 out of 70 doesn't sound particularly good. Out of seven. Out of seven. <laughs> oh, sorry. 4.9 4. out of five, a- oh, average out of 70 reviews. <laughs> no, oh, I've not got 4.9 out of I'm 70. <laughs> it's a very similar to that. We've, we've got a 4.9 rating on this as well. There's always one okay. prick who has to come in and take away your five-star rating, mm, but, yeah. but we know that. All right. So thanks for your reviews. Toby, uh, anything else you want to plug? Well, just wanted to encourage people to donate to the daily skeptic it's you know your donations that make it possible for us to produce the daily skeptic create the weekly skeptic um pay dr peterson and others um and uh, in addition um uh, please if you haven't already signed up to the free speech union um think about signing up to the free speech union if you're on benefits or you're a student or you're a pensioner you can join for as little as two pounds 49 a month and believe me uh, if the cancellation mob come for you you'll be grateful you remember absolutely all right well i think that's everything then so until next week i'll simply say stay skeptical stay skeptical